electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Today, snow keeps accumulating and avalanche could be in the distance. One Wall Street firm again upgrading Snowflake. We'll talk to the analysts behind the call today. As valuations continue to plummet, who are the next M&A targets? This hour will break down some names in the online retail space that may be on sale. And speaking of M&A, FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried denying reports the company's looking to buy Robinhood. That stock up 14 yesterday. It's actually where we'll start this morning with Kate Rooney, who's got the latest. Kate? Hey, Carl, that's right. Sources I've been talking to are skeptical of an outright deal between FTX and Robinhood, but there is some strategic rationale, or we could end up seeing a partnership model. Another CEO in the industry telling me the cost of acquiring customers especially in the U.S., has roughly tripled from around 60 bucks back in 2020 to $250 per customer. The revenue per user, meanwhile, has roughly stayed the same. Robinhood has more than 22 million customers, so buying Robinhood uh, may be a cheaper way for FTX to get those customers. Sam Bankman-Fried, meanwhile, has been on a deal spree and is moving FTX into equities as well. The company acquiring a smaller brokerage startup. We've uh, reported on some of the ambitions there. He also gave two emergency loans to crypto companies, BlockFi and Voyager. It comes as the price of Bitcoin has fallen roughly in half. And uh, trading volume of Coinbase and Robinhood we've seen really fall off sharply this year. FTX is likely seeing the same slowdown. And that calls into question whether FTX could afford this deal. It is a private company, but the last funding round was roughly $500 million back in January. Analysts at JMP also throwing some cold water on a potential deal. They say bottom line conversations appear to be Extremely preliminary. And while they could progress, we currently view a sale as relatively low probability. We believe a fire sale price is off the table. Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev and the co-founder Baiju Bot control the majority of voting rights. I'm told they were not approached or given a heads up about Bankman Fried's 7.6% stake in Robinhood. They really were caught off guard there. Any hostile takeover really is out of the question. This is something the Robinhood founders would have to say yes to. Carl. Uh, Kate, it's a great setup for an interesting uh, topic here this morning. Two things, John. One is um, the discussion about whether it needs to or should be owned by legacy financials or somebody new. The other is how everyone, the whole industry, seems to be relying on Sam to rescue everybody. (laughs) Well, I don't know what Robinhood is anymore. What do they have that's special? I mean, it started off with cheap trades and building up this base of younger, newer retail investors. I'm not sure how committed that base of retail investors is to continue to trade. Frankly, I'm not sure how much money they got left. I mean, how much of that was being funded by Bitcoin and other (laughs) cryptocurrencies? And is that group getting more conservative? So, you know, talk about it being for sale. What are people buying, really? If you are an established uh, financial institution, I wonder, what are you getting? Like, are you getting some younger user base that's really worth much? Or if you waited a few years for them to get better jobs, would they end up with you anyway? Well, I think that is the entire premise of this deal. 23 million active accounts, 
of users who are really at the beginning of their financial journeys. Robinhood has not done a good job in transitioning them and cross-selling them different products in a way that maybe a SoFi has done a better job. So the question is, can a legacy player like a Goldman Sachs, Carl, I heard your conversation with Jim earlier this morning, can they do that? They've been trying to with Marcus. Maybe Robinhood is that perfect thing. Sam Bankman-Fried, very unproven whether they can become this sort of all-in-one fintech stop. Um, but it does beg the question. I mean, it goes back a few years, guys. Robinhood had so much success that kind of led to its downfall as well. It needs a brand refresh. Is Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, Carl, the right people to do that? I mean, as a, you know, a crypto company based in the Bahamas, can they do that refresh that Robinhood needs? Or... Or maybe you should just buy DraftKings, right, if you're Goldman Sachs. If you want that younger user base, right? I mean, if you want the gamblers who are eventually going to buy stock, buy Draft, DraftKings is only, what, $5.5 billion? Isn't that still maybe, cheaper than Robinhood? Maybe DraftKings should buy Robinhood, John, to your point. <laughs> then you got the gambling and you got the brokerage account. Spider-Man, Spider-Man meme right there. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Well, let's take a closer look um, at Robinhood with an early investor in the platform. Joining us now, Slow Ventures General Partner, Sam Lesson. Sam, what do you make of the conversation we had? Uh, and as an early investor, do you think that Robinhood should be selling itself? Has it proven well, and kind of had its chance to prove itself and fallen short? Look, it's a pretty entertaining conversation. I'll give you that. I mean, like, look, I think what's happened and what we've seen through the pandemic is tech is extremely important in uh, tech narratives. But... If early pandemic and kind of the last few years has been the story of pure tech plays taking off and doing great things and really growing quickly, I think a lot of the late pandemic in the last few years has been about legacy players actually getting their tech stories straight. So you, know, you look at streaming, you know, the last few years, the growth in streaming wasn't Netflix, it was Disney, right? You know, you look at retail, the growth was Amazon to a point, but it was really more kind of legacy players like Walmart. And so you are seeing kind of, I think, these legacy brands step up their tech games. And maybe the story of tech comes in, new brand new tech companies uh, and, you know, be takes over everything changes. So I think that, that begs the question of when you take a Robin Hood, which, again, let's not forget, was massively innovative, um, did incredible things and reaped the benefits of that from a growth perspective. What their next play is, is it merging with crypto? Um, you know, as those two, the lines between those two ecosystems blur, maybe I think that's a reasonable step. Um, is it diversifying financial products and quote unquote growing up as you guys are framing it? Maybe, but th th there's no question there has to be a second act, you know, to yeah. go from being whatever it is, a $10 billion company to a $30 billion company. But the question is, can Vlad Tenev do that second act? Is he the right person to execute on that? Or is it, your point is so interesting, Sam, is it a legacy bank that could come in or legacy player and, you know, create that second act better than the founders could? You know, I, look, I, I'm a believer in founders, you know, founding companies from zero. This is what we do, you know, and watch you know, CEOs do over and over and over is really hard. It's far harder than, you know, being placed in to operate an existing company. Uh, and I think those are the guys, especially with the incentive, you know, you, you can you can knock people having consolidated plans where they control companies. But the incentives are very clear and aligned. They want a second act just as much as anyone else, the founders. So, you know, I'm a guy who always bets on founders, um, but you got to be willing to take risks. Uh, make big moves and also kind of be reasonable and rational about where the world is uh, and, and kind of how to move forward. So, you know, would I bet on those guys to do something discontinuous, impactful, really move the ball forward more than anyone else? Absolutely. Um, but there's no question that when you go from starting a company to running a public company super fast, when you grow really quickly, it requires you to learn really quickly uh, and the game changes fast.
Sam, uh, in all seriousness, right, we're having a little fun there, but there is a serious question, I think, fundamentally uh, at the center of it, which is, what is the next playing field for innovation in the space where Robinhood is? Do they have existing differentiation to really excel there? Uh, or, or if not, what needs to be built to excel? Because up to this point, they were uh, good at getting retail to take on additional risk for better yep. and for worse. They made that efficient. They made it fun. They had a great user interface for it. But it doesn't seem like that's what gets you to the next level. Well, I also think I think I think it's a little unfair to categorize it as just getting people to take risk. I think it's educating a whole new group of investors and a whole new group of people about different financial really, products. Though, I don't, I don't think a lot of people got much smarter using Robinhood. Like, I, I didn't speak to any retail investors using Robinhood that sounded fundamentally smarter to me than investors using Fidelity, for example, or well, TD Ameritrade. I think that's a little hard to say, you know, from a sample of your personal conversations. I think the reality is, is Robinhood for sure. I didn't see anything on Reddit or anywhere else that suggested to me that Robinhood users got smarter using that platform than other retail investors. I mean, did you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you look at kind of what, what was going on in Reddit, if, if you want to get into Wall Street bets, you can knock it all you want, but the retail world's understanding of what derivatives are, or different strategies, or how kind of markets move, and how, how, how people with, you know, how these things work, I think dramatically expanded because of Robinhood. Now, that doesn't mean legacy platforms can't offer those things as well. It doesn't mean everything was done perfectly. But I think to categorize it as simply Robinhood did well by getting people who didn't know what they were doing to pile on risk is, is really quite myopic. Um, now, that said, I, I'm with you. There has to be a second act. There has to be an expansion from there. And I do think legacy players are, are getting smart fast. You know, that's the difference between 10 years ago and today is the legacy companies move much faster and respond to new challenges way better than they used to. And that means that if you're going to be a tech aggressor and come up with new things, you, you can't have one act. You can't come up with a user acquisition strategy and call it a day. You know, you need to continuously be pushing the envelope. Now, where that comes from, look, you know, we spend most of our time in crypto. We have for many years. We're not Johnny come lately to that space. You know, I do believe, you know, I think the reason there's so much excitement about the FTX, SBF kind of world is if you ask me, that is where the next generation of really important innovation comes from. And if you take an innovative platform with young customers like Robinhood, absolutely point the guns in that direction versus trying to do you know, traditional boring old products. Um, but again, that's for the founders to figure out and for the company to figure out for sure. You know, Sam, your point about scaling and the, the obviously the historic uh, challenges of scaling any business are intense. But when it comes to financials and you got to deal with payment for order flow and you got to manage clearing times and, and regulators, I just wonder if you think the next when the when the next boom comes, if operators are going to approach that scaling with a little more caution. Well, I think a few things. One is you can look at the world of how tech evolves from a platform perspective. So so much of the internet as we know it today exists because of Amazon Web Services. Used to be really hard to scale web platforms, right? But services came along and platforms which made it way easier for other people to scale pieces of that and experiences way better and faster. You know, crypto provides many of those rails. Uh, so look for those kind of underlying uh, infrastructure pieces in crypto and beyond to come online that I think will unlock a ton of new innovation. Uh, and then I think the second thing is like, look, I, I think one of the frustrations that young people have with the financial markets and candidly healthcare compared to digital technology is that it is so laden with regulation and incumbents that it, it is very difficult to innovate. And I think that's why Robinhood was such an exciting and is such an exciting player is because they managed to do something 
innovative in a space that is so legacy dominated. Um, you such a, have such a huge uphill battle. Yeah. If you want to see great innovation in that space, there have to be unlocks, right? Um, and you know, it's it's a challenge. That's the point. Yeah, Sam, I, I don't disagree with you. I'm one of those people that wanted to see things become more efficient. Some of those guardrails taken down, but the promise so far has fallen short. We'll see if that changes, especially with with crypto. Sam Lesson, thank you very much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. All right, let's stick with fintech. In this current downturn, should we expect to see more consolidation in the space? Joining us now, Bain & Company partner and fintech M&A specialist, Michael Cashman. Uh, Michael, uh, let's sort of continue the conversation that we were just having with Sam. What's the secret sauce? What are the differentiators that are most important in the fintech space now that are even worth buying? That's a good question. I think one thing we've seen in the market in the last couple of years is we've been in an enormous transition from a growth mindset and growth at all costs and, and focus on user counts and revenues to profitability. I think what we're going to see in the near term is actually a pretty big and sudden shift um, from that growth mindset to a profitability mindset. That's going to be really hard for some businesses to do. And given the amount of investor uncertainty out there, I think we're going to see companies that have been burning a lot of cash need to turn to a cash-rich partner and, and potentially make a deal. So I think we're going to see a different deal market in the coming three or four years than we've seen in the most recent couple of years. Okay, so I understand why some of the smaller players need the bigger players' cash to make a deal, but why do the bigger players need the smaller players, or which ones do they need? I've got questions about, I mean, I, I still think one of the biggest uh, you know, distinctions of this era for retail was just this technology that made it easier to take risk and maybe to understand what options trading was uh, factually, but maybe not understand the risks of it. I mean, are there certain platforms that you think really did educate users and therefore have this sophisticated, younger, early user base that's going to be valuable to larger players? So I, I think there's a, a lot of disruption that's happened here. I think the, the biggest thing that, that the bigger players need to get is they need to try to win the future and get consumers engaged with them earlier in the life cycle. So if you look at where uh, younger Americans are signing up or engaging with financial services, it's much more likely to be with a Robin Hood or a Cash App than it is to be with your local community bank or a legacy wirehouse. I think what, what we haven't seen bridged yet is getting that older generation that has most of the capital still to actually decide to, to trade off and, and go with a app-generated financial service provider. We also haven't seen really a lot of activity moving, as you guys were saying, from a point solution that's really generated uh, around winning a lot of customers quickly to more of a suite that's going to start to generate sustainable revenue. Michael, we, we keep going back to sort of the premise of Robinhood from the very beginning and certainly in focus during its IPO, and that is the promise of its young active user base. Why do you think that that hasn't come up to fruition or sort of lived up to those expectations? Why aren't its users buying into other financial products on the Robinhood platform? Is that sort of an indication that Robinhood's team hasn't executed that maybe someone else could? Well, I, I can't speak to what Robinhood's team specifically it has or hasn't done. I think what, what I can say is that if you look at the average you know, distribution in America, the, the younger customer base, which is much more likely to be on a Robinhood or, or a Cash App or a Webull, they, they just don't have the same amount of assets or same amount of lending needs that the older generation does. So we have a real big mismatch in the United States between who's using app-based financial services and, frankly, who has all the money. And so it's very difficult to get a 65-year-old who might have 
you know, million, $2 million in, in their account to actually decide, I need to migrate those dollars over. And at the same time, you really can't take, you know, mid-20s, uh, you know, users of, of app-based trading accounts and, and rapidly transition them into savings. They frankly just don't have that much savings. They sort of look like the average American. Right. And, and sort of a lot of the fintechs that have gone public over the last few years, they all want to be this one-stop shop, right, where they can cross-sell all these different financial services products. Why haven't we seen more consolidation? Do you think that we will this year with valuations coming down to where they are now? Or is there more to yeah. go? I think we have a lot more to go. I think that it's going to be interesting because we haven't seen a lot of great examples in the past of legacy financial institutions successfully acquiring and then integrating a new tech forward uh, challenger. So I think we're going to we're going to need to see a couple of proof points there. But um, but I think really it's come down to this lack of the ability to transition customers because they frankly don't engage in a lot of other consumer financial activity. They don't have a mortgage. They don't have an auto loan, um, but they might have, you know, Two, three, four thousand dollars that they wanted to trade. All right, you got the perfect name for this segment, Michael Cashman. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come this morning, an upgrade of Snowflake, as we said, plus some exclusive sound with Reed Hoffman. Tech Check is just getting started. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back. One name getting an upgrade in the recent software sell-off. Jeffrey is calling Snowflake's execution, quote, near flawless and expecting the company to grow faster than its peers. CEO Frank Slootman joined us yesterday. We're not really picking up signals of distrust and duress, uh, you know, in our constituency. It doesn't mean that other people are not seeing it. But I can only, you know, react to our experience and, you know, the, the type of things that what we do are still highly prioritized in large enterprises. And by the way, you're seeing that in CIO surveys that were just conducted by JP Morgan and other people um, that their the, the spending intentions are still incredibly high. 
So, um, you know, we're not backing off of, off of anything uh, at this point in time. We just see no reason to. Joining us now on that upgrade, Jeffrey's Brent Phil. Um, Brent, best in class fundamentals, you say? Uh, they certainly do have a lot of loyal customers who have a lot of money to spend. Yeah, I think Snowflake has the chance to become a, a really important pillar like Salesforce has in the front office or Workday in the back office, Amazon and infrastructure. The, the data cloud is a huge opportunity. We're swimming in all this information, trying to make sense of, of what the data is. And for companies that may end up going into economic duress, they're going to want to act quicker and, and see that information. And so we think Snowflake has a, a phenomenal opportunity uh, this has been run by, as you highlighted, Frank Slootman and Mike Scarpelli, who are proven co-pilots uh, running ServiceNow, you know, in creating that infrastructure to create a $100 billion cap. This is a, you know, half that market cap of ServiceNow. And so we think the opportunity is equal, if not bigger than ServiceNow. So for long-term investors, great opportunity. I'm not trying to call the bottom here. I think ultimately the, we still have some duress in, in software valuations and in fundamentals, and we don't really know exactly what the recession's going to look like. So we're, we're highlighting the downside of 100. But over time, I think you know there's parallels to say this could be a market cap that could look like uh, ServiceNow, and that's twice what, what Snowflake's market cap is today. Downside scenario, 100 bucks a share. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think you know when you think about okay. really high quality, real high quality uh, software stories, John. You you, you know you, you can get to you know a, a eight to ten times forward revenue, and and that would put you closer to a hundred dollars uh, on the stock. So the downside's you know a hundred, and we saw you know the stock go in you know a lot lower. So I've been very clear with clients: we're not trying to bottom take. What we're trying to say is we've never recommended the stock. We've never had a buy on it. We've been disciplined. The stock was at 400. It's now sub 150. So uh, we think ultimately for larger institutional investors to stay, start to take uh, a look. This is a name that's highly shorted by our hedge fund clients. Um, the shorts worked. Uh, and ultimately, I, I, I'm not suggesting that it's not going to continue to work in the short term. Uh, you know, that there is some downside here. But I think, again, for long term investors looking at a three to five year horizon, uh, we think the stock's going to be higher over time. You know, Brent, the, the note is, is fascinating. You say fundamentals remain rock solid. Uh, to what degree is that taking into account uh, any hesitation uh, among clients to buy more or even, uh, or even renew uh, their business? Yeah, Carl, there's going to be uh, some, some concern. I mean, they highlighted in the last call, there was a big consumer-facing internet company that slowed their consumption and that they are a consumption model, right? The more times you hit enter on Snowflake, they get paid on consumption of doing queries into their system. So uh, companies theoretically can slow uh, that consumption and that their model is under duress. It's not like Salesforce.com where we know it's a $3 million bill every single year for the next three years. Um, and so that consumption model in an economic storm, if again, if it comes in hard and, and we have a bigger headwind on the economy, uh, that certainly can hurt the consumption models in the short term. That's a primary concern. And we're not uh, you know, trying to fly under the radar on it. We're, we're, we're addressing it head on that it, it can be a concern. But I think as we come out of this and in, in the position of the company, uh, they remain in a in a phenomenal uh, spot uh, as it relates to one of the key pillars that that we think is going to have long term attention from large enterprises. As Frank highlighted, yeah. this is a large enterprise play. This is not an SMB play.
Brent, um, something else, though, some might argue that stock-based compensation clouds the fundamentals. It was equal to about half of Snowflake's sales over the past two years. It really clouds the profitability picture. Um, how do you feel about the portion that it gives out in stock-based compensation? A year ago, we had no stock-based comp questions. Uh, in the last month, we've had 50 questions on this. So I think it's an issue for broader tech. It's an issue for software, no doubt. And ultimately, companies have to get their hands around it. So it, yeah, it's, 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 it's an issue, it's and it's an issue, issue for everyone. for Snowflake than some other companies, the proportion. Yeah, and I think that's, again, a, a key overhang that people have to contend with. Look, if you actually worried about that, you know, in the last cycle, you missed a lot of performance. So I, I think I, I'm not trying to deflect the question, but I think this is an issue for broader tech uh, than an issue for just Snowflake. And they've talked about trying to manage the dilution over time. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a huge overhang for our industry. And that's why many of our stocks are down, you know, 30 to 60% year to date. And that, a lot of that's embedded in the stock now. So, Brent, how much can Snowflake, and maybe you can speak to a broader cohort, uh, how much can the growth rates afford to come down um, and, and still have the sort of potential that you see in some of these um, companies that are executing flawlessly or close to? Yeah, I mean, they've set a $10 billion goal, and that implies, you know, somewhere in the mid to high 20% growth, roughly. Uh, so ultimately, we think for them to get to these goals are not are, are not a stretch. Again, this is the same management team that built ServiceNow into a $100 billion market cap company. And they executed over time, and there were a lot of doubters, including myself early on, could they become a platform? And they pr proved that they could do it. And it took time. And so this is not a call on next quarter or the next month. This is a call in the next three to five years that we we have the conviction. We we watched what Frank and Mike could do as a management team and what, what the organization uh, did. You listen to the system integrators. You listen to the customers. And they believe in this. And they believe that this is an important pillar. And even while Amazon and Google are trying to compete with them, my friends at Amazon say, we hope that they do well because the more data they consume, the more data goes to the public cloud, the better it is for Amazon and AWS. So while the, 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 you know, there's some, some tension in competitively with Amazon, Amazon's hoping in many ways that this works because they want more data to come to the public cloud that they can help manage on the back end. And so I think and this is inevitable. You look at even some of the best private companies like Databricks who who are are, are 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 in a great spot as well. I mean, there's there's room for multiple vendors to to survive here and do very well. Um, this is not just not just Snowflake. All right, Brent Thill with uh, with the call and the caution. Thank you. Thank you. Well, companies across all industries are scaling back due to economic uncertainty. But even in these volatile times, businesses they're focused on competition. As part of CNBC's Technology Executive Council gathering last week, I spoke with LinkedIn founder and Silicon Valley legend Reid Hoffman. He said the company should be finding ways to stay on the offensive in this changing environment. Have a listen. Too often, what happens within the general discourse is, well, we're shifting from you know 40% growth to 20% growth. Oh my God, we're shrinking. And you're like, well, that's not shrinking. That's different growth rates, <laughs> right? And 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 you're still, if you're you want to be growing and extending your market share in a way that you're that you're you're showing what an amazing company you are. People thinking intelligently, they think, okay, ultimately, 
I can play this offense. How do I play this offense? How do I get to, to, to having the competitive differentiation in this new environment? For Hoffman, that offensive approach extends beyond business strategy and into politics as well, saying he hopes to elect more moderate Democrats to Congress this fall, but only by beating certain far-left Democrats in the midterm election. For more on our exclusive conversation, head over to CNBC.com. Carl. That's fascinating, especially when we consider Bankman-Fried and Hoffman, as we will talk more politics as the year goes on. Uh, take a look at uh, Microsoft Palo Alto Micron. We'll talk some cloud cybersecurity and semis. NASDAQ is at session lows, and the Dow, which was up 400-plus this morning, now down 111. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. In just a minute, Julia is going to take a look at Disney. Shares up 2% as the board meets ahead of a few key park reopenings. We'll get more on that in a moment. First, though, a news update with Christina Parts and Evelos. Hey, Christina. Hi, Carl. Good morning, everyone. Russian gold won't be allowed into the United States under a new round of sanctions unveiled this morning by the Treasury Department. Gold is Russia's second biggest export after energy. The U.K., Canada, and Japan are also banning Russian gold. Inflation worries, especially for gasoline and food, are making consumers more pessimistic about the economy's future than they've ever been in almost a decade, I should say, just in the past decade. The conference's board's expectations index fell sharply in June to its lowest level since 2013. The business research group says that it suggests weaker economic growth for the rest of the year and an increased risk of recession. But... Excuse me, there's a potential sign that housing prices are cooling. The S&P Core Logic Case Shiller Index increased by 20.4% in April compared to the same month last year, slightly less than March's 20.6% jump. Little cough in there, but back over to you, John. That's okay, Christina, thank Sorry. you. Meanwhile, Disney shares higher this morning, still under 100 bucks a share though. Julia is with us looking at some of the catalysts. Hi Julia. Well, John, Disney today announced it would reopen Shanghai Disneyland on Thursday. This comes as Rosenblatt's Martin Crockett says it's great for Disney to reopen Shanghai, which was 15 percent of Disney's global attendance pre-pandemic and growing faster than the rest of the world. But Crockett warns that he does not have confidence that the park will stay open. 
This as Disney's 11 member board, including CEO Bob Chapek, convenes in Florida for their meeting to review the company's businesses and also consider Chapek's future. This is ahead of his contract expiring in February. Sources at the company tell me that they do expect a vote to extend Chapek's contract either at this meeting or at one in the fall after the board chair issued a statement in support of Chapek following his firing of senior executive Peter Rice. The question is for how long that contract extension is for. Chapek has drawn harsh criticism for his mishandling of the company's response to Florida's don't say gay bill, but sources tell me that management's response to Roe v. Wade reversals was very well received in contrast. Friday morning, all Disney employees received an email reiterating the company's commitment to providing reproductive care no matter where employees live. A business challenge that's now in focus, sources tell me, is the fact that Disney's recent Lightyear movie had the 18th lowest box office debut of any Pixar movies. And this comes after the last two Pixar movies were released exclusively on Disney Plus. So this raises questions about whether Disney Plus is cannibalizing the studio's box office. And now the pressure's on for Chapek to show ongoing streaming subscriber growth when the company reports its earnings in early August. I'm told that could be the most important factor for Chapek's longevity as Disney CEO. Carl? Uh, it is never a dull moment with Disney, that is for sure, Julia. Uh, appreciate that, our Julia Borston. Meanwhile, don't miss Amazon Web Services CEO uh, Adam Slipsky on uh, Mad Money tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time. In the meantime, Tech Check is back after a quick break. for gut check on e-commerce, UBS downgrading eBay and Farfetch to neutral, setting low expectations and pointing to the continued lack of profits at Farfetch. UBS says that it is reducing the price targets for both those names, lower multiples and estimates across the board. Remember, Needham downgraded Etsy yesterday, arguing that its discretionary model is most at risk. In general, guys, this is a theme that we've talked about. Smaller e-commerce stocks, they have traded terribly. The real, real stitch fix, Allbirds, ThreadUp, WishParent, ContextLogic, they're all down more than 80% over the past 12 months. And Carl, we've seen a similar re-rating in fintech. We just spoke to Michael Cashman, said, why isn't there more consolidation? He says there's probably more room to go lower. And you got to wonder if that's the case for these e-commerce companies, too, if even 80% off their highs is enough. Yeah, I'm thinking about the eBay call today. Uh, UBS uh, cuts to neutral. They go from 60 to 48 uh, GMV down 17, they see for the year, John. Street's only down 16, 15, something like that. I think this is a really interesting opportunity for investors because we talk about these as being e-commerce companies, but a lot of them have very different models. Some of them are stores. Some of them are trying to be more platforms. So you look at Shopify, for example, has been bumping around between 300 and 400 a share for most of the past two months. It's very different, right, trying to create this small business, small medium business marketplace versus an Etsy. Right. Yeah. And there are questions about the fees that get paid here, how the stores themselves, the merchants are getting yeah. squeezed, what's happening with inventory. So I think based on what you think is going to happen with the economy and based on who's differentiated in the technology, you know, investors can make some moves here. And on the other side of a Shopify or an Etsy, there's the strictly D2C brands, right, direct to consumer brands that 
do one thing really well. And you saw this a few years ago. Remember Walmart with Bonobos and you did see this consolidation. Those ones may be ripe for the picking if the price is right, Carl. Yeah, it's a good point. Bonobos takes me back a few years. <laughs> uh, you may want to, as we go to break, get a check on Qualcomm this morning. B of A does add it to the U.S. one list, which represents its best buy rated ideas. Stocks down about 30 percent for the year uh, this morning, but up uh, about a third of a percent. Tech checks back in a moment. After a very calm day yesterday, uh, markets moving this morning rather quickly. S&P now down 1%, NASDAQ down 1 and 3 quarters percent. Carl, we'll see where this goes for the rest of the day, but not this kind of velocity yesterday. Yeah, I definitely sold into that morning rally, that's for sure. Uh, turning to the market, the big question remains whether we're headed for a recession or maybe already in one. Consumer confidence data came in week today. And then take a listen to ARK Invest Kathy Wood this morning on Squawk. I've been listening to your program. I heard Ken Langone talk about being in recession now, Jeremy Siegel saying, we think we're in a recession and we think a really big problem out there is inventories, the likes of the the increase uh, of which I've never seen this large in my career. And I've been around for 45 years. Our next guest, though, thinks much of the damage has already been done and says it's not the time to stay bearish on tech. Joining us this morning, Webbush Securities Head of Equity Trading, Sahak Manueli. And Sahak, it's great to have you. I know you're paying attention to the rollover in ag prices, industrial metals, shipping rates, apparel, and, and looking at that feed through to what it might mean for tech. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on today. So we think um, now is probably not the time to remain too bearish on tech shares, much of the damage has been done, as you stated in your opening remarks here. Valuations have come down significantly since um, since late last year, and, and yields have actually been flattening across the curve over the last couple of weeks. And furthermore, we see the signs of uh, disinflationary forces now showing up in some of the soft commodities. And when when talking about this, we we take a look at this DBA ETF, which which does a good job of you know looking at corn, soybean, coffee, sugar, etc. Uh, this got hit pretty good yesterday, below its 200-day, waffling uh, right around the unch line today or just above it. But um, certainly there's been some disinflationary forces at play. Between now and the next FOMC meeting, which is July 27th, we'll only get two more inflationary prints. So not sure if that'll be enough to, to sway the uh, Fed either way, but uh, th- this will certainly garner more uh, mind share with with investors between now and then. Right. I know uh, Microsoft and Palo Alto are of some interest to you in terms of tech plays. Uh, to what degree do we still need to be cautious about what earnings pre-announcement season, what Q2 earnings may bring us? So I, I think uh, it's it's still extremely important to make sure you know one's paying attention to uh, pre-announcements. That, that are coming about. But, you know, when we're talking about stocks like Microsoft and, and Palo Alto, again, we're trying to go after and trying to pick stocks that, that are industry leaders, uh, large caps with very strong underlying fundamentals that are now getting caught up in some of the uh, crowded selling, if you will. And, and I think uh, Microsoft, certainly a mega cap that, that has had a great move, has come down quite a bit now. But, you know, again, their underlying fundamentals, very strong. Uh, trading at about 25 times next next year's uh, earnings um, with with one of the best management teams out there. 
We just think that, you know, it's probably a little bit overdone. If not, it's certainly one that one should be looking at as to uh, where to put money to work. As, as much of the long duration type names or high flying, no profit tech, however you want to categorize mm -hmm. these, have, have just gotten beaten up um, and have been almost left for dead. Uh, namely, many of the ARC, ARC type funds that uh, we were yeah. talking about on the show earlier this morning. Zahak, the optimism, though, of the last week or so that we have seen seems to be taking a turn this morning. The Nasdaq down about 1.8 percent at the moment. Um, the 10-year yield above 3.2 percent. What do you think is happening in the current session? And do you think that this is a turn um, because markets are remembering, hey, there's still the Fed's trajectory that we got to look at and the economy looks to be heading into a recession, if not already there? Good question. Right. So, you know, we'd been uh, doing OK in tech the last few days or the last week or so. And and uh, I'm on this morning and, and tech is, is certainly a, a tape laggard. So what's going on today? Commodity price or prices are, are tending to move higher. Uh, the DBA, like I just said, is moving up a little bit. Um, the good news, bad news with, with this stuff is this will now push, you know, inflationary and monetary tightening expectations a little bit higher. So that ratchets up. Uh, with that ratcheting up, you get this upward pressure on yields which is what we've seen now this morning. So I talked about yields coming down for the last two weeks or, or a flattening of the curve over the last two weeks. Yesterday and today, we've been actually seeing the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. And so as we get these, this upward pressure on yields, uh, it, it certainly uh, hurts or, or negatively affects these high multiple equities uh, like, like the tech complex. So Sahak, you say it's not the time to stay bearish in tech, but what is it the time for? This This feels, especially yesterday, like that scene in the cartoon or the movie where somebody kind of falls off the ledge and then they're able to kind of grab a little finger hold and it's like, oh, are they gonna climb back up or are they more likely gonna keep falling? I mean, is it that we're waiting for some further signal from here on what happens next and then what are the most likely important data points to determine that? Well, you gave me a good visual, John. Thank you. Um, I think so. So I, th I think what's really important here is, is the Fed. The, the Fed is is right now in, in control of the markets and and fundamentals have taken somewhat of a backseat as it's been all about the Fed and will continue to be about the Fed going into the rest of this year. But, you know, in this environment, Right. I started off by saying now's not the time to remain too bearish. I think in this environment of slowing growth, which is undeniable, uh, Fed tightening and rising yield curve, uh, one has to be more selective about uh, what they're picking in, in, in their portfolio of, of stocks. And I think uh, some of these names that we're throwing out this morning, like Palo Alto, Microsoft, and, and maybe one that's a little bit more speculative, like, like Micron in the semiconductor complex, um, you know, affords one. Uh, s some grace period of, of, of maybe not getting it exactly right, but at least coming into uh, strong fundamental stories that have maybe given back some gains and aren't quite as expensive as they were. What we want to be avoiding is still the long duration stocks, these high flyers from uh, the, the pandemic era, uh, much of the work from home names, which were, which were you know, great, view viewed as great services, but now just proving to be very, very tough businesses. And these are like, you know, Zoom, RingCentral, uh, Smartsheet, uh, DocuSign, all these stocks that, that had these crazy moves in the, in the pandemic, 
now now have come in a, a very long way. And, and I think these are the ones that we still want to avoid. But in that same breath, we want to start going after more uh, fundamentally sound companies like the three that we just mentioned. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, by the time it's obvious, it's usually too late. Uh, great stuff, Sohawk. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks again. Well, we are keeping our eye on the tape in this market. The NASDAQ now down 1.85%, getting closer to that 2% mark. S&P down 1%. The Dow off just a half a percent. Tech Check is back in two. Tech companies have been some of the most outspoken when it comes to politics. Over the last several days, many have weighed in on the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Many also pushing back against anti-LGBTQ legislation. Steve Kobach has more on that. Steve? Yeah, John, companies, including notable tech companies like IBM, Apple, Lyft, and Microsoft, are offering support for these communities and allies. Nearly 300 signing on to a letter from the Human Rights Campaign in May saying laws, quote, seek to put the authority of state government behind discrimination and promote mistreatment of a targeted LGBTQ population. So these companies are giving employees a place to go when they're targeted by this legislation or broadly in the culture. And there are lots of examples of that. Lyft is allowing drivers to easily change their names in the app without legal proof. And they provide financial assistance for drivers who might be transitioning. And Dell sent a lawyer to testify in the Texas legislature against a discriminatory transgender sports bill. And IBM also pressuring lawmakers to pass laws benefiting LGBTQ people. The company testifying in favor of the Equality Act in 2019, which would ban discrimination based on gender or sexual orientation. IBM's VP of Leadership Development and Inclusion, Carla Grant Pickens, telling me how that works. Take a listen. We do do what we call uh, uh, fly-ins that we actually do face-to-face -face, um, in states or we will actually do those, of course, in DC. And um, we actually meet with, um, on both sides of the aisle, senators and congressional representatives to really review our DNI agenda. So the question I've been asking all these companies, why is this good for business? And it boils down to what's good for employees feeling safe is good for business overall. Now here's what Intuit's chief DEI officer, Humera Saheed, told me about that. We believe ultimately that having a diverse environment and having a place where people's voices can be heard and their perspectives are valued, we will build more better, more innovative and more like relevant products for our customers. A good lesson. Deirdre, I'll send it back to you. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Steve. Meanwhile, markets continue to sell off. The Dow is down more than 200 points. Tech Check back after this. We continue to watch the markets. Uh, Dow opened with a pretty nice gain, had been up 447 at the session high, uh, but lost that as a lot of uh, people sold into the morning rally, John. Got to see how this one ends, Carl. So I'll tell you what, I'll be back here at three for a closing bell. And you at four? Yeah, I'll be four. D, your turn watching. next. <laughs> <laughs> so the Dow's down 197. Let's get to Melissa Lee in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.